Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I am Elise Karen, Practice Improvement Coaching Lead for Cardio's Team Best Practices and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Today's podcast will address the important topic of disparities in cardiovascular disease and diabetes. With me today is Dr. Joshua Joseph. Dr. Joseph is an Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at The Ohio State University. He is an alumnus of Morehouse College and Boston University School of Medicine, during which time he spent two years at the National Institutes of Health in the Medical Research Scholars Program. He completed his internal medicine residency and was on the general internal medicine faculty at Yale University School of Medicine. Previously, he was the Christopher D. Sodek MD Fellow in Diabetes Research at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine before joining the faculty at The Ohio State University in 2016. He is a board-certified endocrinologist and physician scientist with expertise in population health and clinical research in diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Dr. Joseph's diabetes patient care focuses on team-based patient-centered approach to living with type 2 diabetes, emphasizing lifestyle behaviors and medical therapeutics. This approach is tailored to provide each patient with the necessary tools to successfully manage type 2 diabetes and avoid the long-term complications of diabetes, including neuropathy, nephropathy, retinopathy, and cardiovascular disease. Nationally, he leads research efforts with the National African American Male Wellness Initiative and is an investigator on a number of clinical trials, including type 2 diabetes treatment-focused trials. Dr. Joseph currently serves on multiple national committees and is a member of the Endocrine Society Clinical Affairs Corps Committee. He is also a former member of the Ohio Commission on Minority Health. Welcome, Dr. Joseph. Thank you so much for having me today. So, Dr. Joseph, from your point of view as an endocrinologist who has studied health disparities in cardiovascular disease, what are the most important serious sources of disparities? Well, thank you for that question, um, and thank you for the audience uh, for tuning in. So, one of the major significant sources are the social determinants of health and the non-medical health-related social needs. These are serious sources of cardiovascular disparities. According to the World Health Organization, the social determinants of health are conditions in which people are born, grow, work, live, and age, and the wider set of forces and systems shaping the conditions of daily life. The non-medical health-related social needs describe the individual level, so the at-the-person at level, social determinants of health. Thus, addressing a social or economic need for an individual patient would be an example of taking care of a non-medical health-related social need. Um, An example I use to illustrate this difference is if you provide transportation to get patients to appointments, you have addressed a non-medical health-related social need. But importantly, that same patient may still not be able to get to work, the grocery store, or to the gym. Whereas addressing the social determinant of health of poverty or economic inequality would allow the patient to not only get to the appointment, but more readily be able to improve the healthy behaviors by getting to the gym and the grocery store. And so when we think about these uh, non-medical health related social needs, uh, they can be resolved or addressed through referrals to various uh, community organizations. And addressing the social determinants of health requires changes in the law or implementing a policy that infects an entire community. So another way to view this uh, for the listeners is to think of this like a stream coming down a mountain. At the top of that stream, at the top of the mountain, we have what we call the upstream determinants of health. These are things like racism, which has been in the news a lot recently, poverty, and discrimination. The midstream determinants, so think about coming halfway down that mountain and looking at the stream there, are things like food insecurity, poor built environment or unsafe or overcrowded housing, 
environmental exposure to toxins, income inequality, unemployment, low educational attainment, poor access to high quality health care. Those are some of the midstream determinants, kind of in the middle of that mountain. And why these are important is that then these lead to downstream health outcomes, including what we're talking about today, Elise, including diabetes and cardiovascular disease, as well as obesity and hypertension, things like premature mortality and maternal mortality. And so those are the health outcomes that are affected by those upstream and midstream determinants. There is a growing conversation around addressing the upstream social determinants of health in cities across Ohio. In Columbus and Franklin County, racism has been deemed a public health crisis by Columbus Public Health and Franklin County Public Health. There is also an active poverty plan in place with a $15 living wage for most of the major employers here in Central Ohio. We have seen demonstrations and protests across the country in support of addressing racism and police brutality after the horrid death of George Floyd. So these are some of the things uh, that we see with the social determinants of health, Elise. So Dr. Joseph, do you think where people live has an effect on their health outcomes? For example, which county they live in or the zip code that they reside in? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. And you may have heard the quote from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, that it's your zip code and not your genetic code, right? That in many ways, where we are born determines our health status. Uh, around Ohio, there is a difference of 10 to 15 years as far as quality and, and, and life expectancy uh, for those who are born in different areas. Um, and some of those factors of why that is, uh, is poor access to medical care, differences in the built environment that we talked about earlier, differences in, in exposure to different environmental toxins uh, in the environment. Um, and so there are many things that impact us differently based on where we live. Uh, and so that is very important that we really address the social determinants of health in all communities, but particularly vulnerable communities uh, throughout Ohio. Just another follow-up question, Dr. Joseph. How do the social determinants of health specifically manifest themselves in cardiovascular disease? And is it limited to cardiovascular disease? Thank you. So, yes. Yeah, so uh, taking a step back uh, for all the participants uh, on this podcast, you know, cardiovascular disease really includes stroke, uh, coronary heart disease or a mild cardioinfarction or a heart attack, as well as heart failure uh, and peripheral vascular disease. Um, so those are the big four categories uh, for cardiovascular disease. And we know that the upstream social determinants of health and the midstream non-medical health-related social needs also lead to pro profound inequities in the leading medical causes of cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. As many of you know, hypertension remains the primary risk factor for cardiovascular disease in the United States. 40.6% of all cardiovascular mortality is related to hypertension. And when we look at the numbers for hypertension from 2011 to 2016, African Americans have some of the highest rates of hypertension in the world, with 57% of males and 53% of females, respectively, having high blood pressure or hypertension. When we compare that to other populations, the numbers for uh, non-Hispanic whites is 47% for males and 39% for females. So you can see the big difference between the two racial ethnic groups. While African-Americans are more likely than whites to be aware of their hypertension and to have it treated, African-Americans additionally achieve blood pressure control less often than whites. And differences in hypertension control among African-Americans are a primary source of the black-white disparity in cardiovascular disease across populations uh, in the United States. When we think about other conditions, including diabetes and obesity, you know, I'm a, I'm a diabetologist, so I have to talk about diabetes. Both diabetes and obesity both raise the risk of cardiovascular disease nearly twofold and have much higher rates in racial and ethnic minority populations, as well as some of the low socioeconomic status populations across Ohio. Thus, the upstream and midstream determinants impact cardiovascular disease both directly and also indirectly through increasing 
the rate and severity of conditions that further increase risk of cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. So they have both direct and indirect effects. Can you discuss or describe some of the cultural issues that might affect behavior change in uncontrolled hypertension? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. And what we see from national level data uh, is that when we look at African-American populations as well as Hispanic-American or Latinx populations, that there are lower levels of physical activity um, and that there are also um, poor you know, diet uh, in general. Um, diets that have less fruits and vegetables, have less fiber, um, higher, higher content of sodium um, and sugar-sweetened beverages, for instance. Um, and, you know, some of this goes back to cultural traditions. You know, in my family, for instance, we uh, grew up eating uh, beef, right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, for me, there's, there's nothing like a good piece of steak. But I know that a good piece of steak isn't good for me. Right. You know, it has lots of components in it uh, that aren't good. But because I grew up eating it, it's hard for me to avoid. And I have to consciously think about it, uh, even as a physician who does work on diabetes and heart disease. Um, and so we were able to make those changes because of more of my educational level and my understanding. Uh, but that's very difficult for folks who, you know, grew up eating a certain kind of diet or, you know, when they thought about uh, physical activity that was only in the context of playing a sport, for instance, uh, in school uh, and not in the context of leisure time, physical activity uh, at home, going for a run, for instance, or going for a swim. Um, and so there are many factors uh, that lead different populations to have varying levels of these healthy behaviors. Uh, and it is admittedly tougher for some populations to think about making those changes. Uh, and that's where having uh, diabetes educators as well as uh, individuals who are educating around hypertension, really to be aware, uh, to have uh, cultural competency as well as cultural humility around how we can work with different cultures uh, to improve uh, these lifestyle behaviors. You've been involved in some very important studies of disparities in cardiovascular disease. What are some of the highlights of that work? Well, thank you so much for that question. And uh, we have been involved in a, a number of different, um, both clinical trials as well as uh, population uh, cardiovascular cohorts uh, around the United States. You know, our research explores many areas of cardiometabolic and cardiovascular disparities. One of the newer or novel areas uh, is understanding the role of cardiovascular health attainment in the development of diabetes, and second, underlying biological pathways and their role in disparities. I specifically study stress pathways, including cortisol uh, and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system in the development of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. We have generally shown that higher levels of cardiovascular health lowers the risk of diabetes. We have studied this using the American Heart Association Ideal Cardiovascular Health, or what's known as in the community as Life Simple 7 paradigm, which includes seven metrics for cardiovascular health, including blood pressure, cholesterol, glucose, body mass index, physical activity, smoking, and healthy diet. First, we have shown that African Americans and Latinx populations have lower levels of cardiovascular health at similar age. So if we looked across ages, we know that African-Americans in Latinx populations have lower levels of these cardiovascular health status. Second, we have shown that having higher levels of cardiovascular health does not lower the risk of developing diabetes as much in African-Americans or Latinx uh, populations compared to non-Hispanic whites or Asian-Americans. Which begs the question, what are some of the other pathways that may be increasing the risk of diabetes? This is why we do the biological pathway work that I previously described. Uh, in the Jackson Heart Study, we have shown that aldosterone, a hormone released from the adrenal gland that sits right on top of the kidneys, uh, and plasma renin activity uh, released from the kidneys, are both associated with higher risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even increased risk of long-term mortality uh, in African-Americans. 
Thus, elevated aldosterone and plasma renin activity may play significant roles in the development of cardiovascular disease and mortality among African Americans. We then explored the association of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system with the development of diabetes across various racial ethnic groups uh, in a study called the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis and found that the strongest associations for the uh, renin angiotensin aldosterone system to diabetes link were found among African Americans and Chinese Americans. To further explore this pathway, we have a current clinical trial exploring medications that actually change the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. And we, what we're looking at is the impact of that on blood sugar or glycemia, and then some of the what we call subclinical measures of cardiovascular disease. Um, and these are the things before you develop the event, but that can be seen in the vessels uh, among African-Americans with prediabetes. So we are currently enrolling patients uh, for that study. Uh, thus, the renin angiotensin aldosterone system may be one pathway uh, with significant linkages between rates of hypertension, uh, because although I didn't talk about it, classically, we think of aldosterone as a high blood pressure hormone. The higher the levels of aldosterone, the higher the blood pressure. So it may be one of the linkages between the high rates of hypertension, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease in African Americans specifically. Dr. Joseph, you've also worked on a number of cardiovascular cohort studies, including the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, MESA, the Jackson Heart Study, the reasons for geographic and racial differences in stroke, otherwise known as regards, the coronary artery risk development in young adults. What are three or four of the important findings for Ohio physicians to be aware of from these cardiovascular cohorts in terms of disparities? So, so first of all, we try to make the, the names as long and as difficult to pronounce as possible, right? That's one of the aims we always have when we're putting together the names of these studies. Uh, so you did a fantastic job in, in pronouncing all those. So I want to give you kudos for that. Um, there are definitely many studies that I could discuss, uh, but I would like to choose a couple that relate to many of the factors we have been discussing and have some really tangible takeaways uh, for those uh, physicians across Ohio. Um, so the first one uh, is in a study um, by the title, and I'll give it the full title so people can go look it up, The Association of Clinical and Social Factors with Excess Hypertension Risk in Black Compared with White U.S. Adults. The first author was George Howard, uh, and this study um, was done in the REGARDS cohort. So what they did here was they followed nearly 7,000 participants over 10 years and evaluated the rates of the development of hypertension. They used a construct called the Southern Dietary Pattern. Um, and the Southern Dietary Pattern is just what you think it is. It's kind of a high sodium, high uh, fried food uh, dietary pattern. Um, and what they found was that this Southern Dietary Pattern was the largest factor that was the uh, reason for the differences uh, in the development of hypertension uh, in black men uh, and uh, the excess risk in black women as well. It was interesting that the diet accounted for 52% of the excess risk in black men and 32, 30, I'm sorry, I apologize, 30% of the excess risk among black women. So among black men, they showed that a higher dietary ratio, ratio of sodium to potassium and an educational level of high school graduate or less were also associated with about 12.3% each of the excess risk of incident hypertension or developing hypertension. Among black women, higher body mass index um, mediated about 18% of the excess risk, a larger waist circumference, 15%. Um, and then less adherence to a low sodium diet, about 11%, uh, income level less than 35,000, about 9%, um, a higher dietary ratio of sodium to potassium, about 7%, and an educational level of high school graduate or less, about 4%. Thus, these factors and environment that we were discussing earlier, those upstream and midstream determinants, were critical in the disparities that we were that were seen in the study around the development of hypertension. 
and thus programming to address these issues would need to address all aspects of food, from food security to food procurement to food preparation, also to income and education, to make an impact on the disparity in hypertension. Dr. Joseph, is there another study you would like to talk about with regards to what Ohio physicians need to be aware of from these cohort studies? Yeah, I'll go through actually two more uh, really briefly. Uh, the first one uh, is a study by Dr. Kara Whitaker, uh, Racial Disparities in Cardiovascular Health Behaviors, the Coronary Artery Risk Development in Young Adults Study. Uh, and so this was the cardia study uh, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, and these participants were actually younger um, when they started the study. Uh, they were in between the ages of 18 to 35 when they started the study. Um, and so this data analysis was conducted in 2016 to 2017 and found that blacks had significantly lower health behavior scores than whites, not only at one point in time, but across 30 years of follow-up. And that individual socioeconomic factors were responsible for between 50 and 70% of the difference between whites and blacks uh, in this study. And that psychosocial factors were responsible for 20 to 30% of the difference. And that neighborhood factors, that going back to where you live and why that matters, were responsible for about 22 to 41% of the difference uh, between these racial ethnic groups. So what they were showing here was that those social determinants of health are extremely important for the health behaviors, right? And so that goes back to my earlier comment. If you live in an environment where there are no sidewalks, it's tougher to go for a jog, right? It's less safe to go for a jog because you may be jogging in a street where there are cars. If you live in an environment where there is not fresh produce because there are corner stores instead of supermarkets, it makes it much more difficult to eat healthy fruits and vegetables, right? To have a high fiber diet, um, to stay away from some of those things we know are not good, including sugar-sweetened beverages. So the environment, coming back to your earlier question about, you know, does it matter where you live? Yes, it does. Uh, because the environment is really pivotal in allowing individuals to be healthy. Um, and then the third study I'd like to talk about um, that kind of brings a lot of this together was the association of modifiable risk factors in young adulthood with racial disparity in incident type 2 diabetes or the development of type 2 diabetes during middle adulthood. Uh, and the first author of this study uh, was Michael Banks um, and a lot of my good friends around the country, uh, including April Carson, Dr. April Carson uh, and Dr. Mercedes Carnathon uh, were on the study. And what they wanted to do here was to determine the, the relative uh, associations of these modifiable biological, neighborhood, psychosocial, socioeconomic, and behavioral factors in young adulthood with the observed racial disparity in diabetes development uh, between middle-aged black and white individuals. So what they showed was that black women and men were more likely to develop diabetes than white men and women. Uh, they also showed that when they looked at that difference, that there were pretty large differences uh, across those groups, even after adjust adjustment for age, um, which we know is a huge risk factor for developing diabetes. The biological factors were most strongly associated with the disparity in diabetes risks between black and white individuals for women and for men. And there was a no longer disparity in diabetes risk between black and white middle-aged adults after adjustment for the biological, neighborhood, psychosocial, socioeconomic, and behavioral factors. So no difference across populations once we took those things into account. So what are some of those biological, neighborhood, psychosocial, socioeconomic, and behavioral factors? So for instance, for the uh, biological factors, some of those things are your body mass index, waist circumference, parental history of diabetes, cholesterol, uh, as well as blood pressure and blood pressure lowering medication. Some of the neighborhood factors, including racial segregation and uh, census tract level percentage of popul populations uh, living in poverty, kind of going back to our earlier conversations. Some of the psychosocial factors were the depression scores, right? Um, some of the socioeconomic factors were education, employment, uh, marital status, uh, parental educational attainment. Uh, and being able to pay for the basics that we all need in life. And then lastly, some of the behavioral factors were smoking status, um, a 
healthy diet, as well as physical activity and alcohol consumption. So once we put all of these things together, what it's showing us uh, is that you know, really to tackle this difference in diabetes across racial ethnic groups, as well as across geographic regions, we really have to address the majority of these factors. Could you please just elaborate on why you think a depression score might affect cardiovascular or diabetes outcomes? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And so I'll, I'll use diabetes as the example. You could also use cardiovascular disease. Um, and so what has been known for a long while now, based on the work of many, including Dr. Sharita Hill-Golden uh, at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, is that diabetes increases risk of depression and depression increases risk of diabetes. Uh, and so our research group has been actually one of the leading research groups around the country to try to understand the why to that question. Um, and we think that the why is really the response to depression. So when individuals have depression, uh, it changes a hormone called cortisol. And I mentioned earlier that we work on a hormone called cortisol. Um, and this cortisol hormone, what it does is it raises blood sugar through two mechanisms. One is that in order for blood sugar to get out of the blood and into the muscles, kidneys, liver, brain, everywhere that sugar needs to go to create energy, there are little doors open in the blood vessel, what, what we commonly refer to as insulin receptors. And it, the cortisol makes it very difficult for those doors to open, thus it drives up the sugar in the blood. And that is likely one of the major mechanisms whereby depression through changes in cortisol leads to diabetes. So we have done multiple studies now um, looking at cortisol and showing that those with higher cortisol levels have much higher rates of fasting glucose as well as hemoglobin A1C, particularly among those who have diabetes, right? Uh, and so there's this relationship between diabetes and cortisol and also a relationship between cortisol and diabetes. The other thing that depression does, and we've seen this in study after study, is that everyone you know, on this podcast knows if you don't feel good, you don't feel like getting up and being physically active. You don't feel like eating the right stuff, right? You know, I'll use the example of, let's say I'm not feeling that well and I haven't slept you know, very well. I'm putting in a grant and I haven't slept, right? The first thing I wanna do is go for that high carb item. Right. I don't want the carrots and the celery. You know, I want the, the pizza or some other thing that is not good for me that has a lot of carbs in it. Right. And so depression also impacts those behavioral factors to to a great extent. Um, and that is the other thing that leads to increases in diabetes risk and cardiovascular disease. There is one more component to that. And that is that once those behavioral factors fall off. Right. Um, and once we're not doing as well on those behavioral factors, well, what happens? Well, we know what happens. We gain weight. Right. And we've already said that weight gain is another thing that leads to diabetes and to heart disease. So there are many factors which by by which uh, depression leads to uh, both diabetes and cardiovascular disease, both through biological mechanisms, including cortisol, as well as these healthy behaviors, uh, including physical activity, diet, uh, and then, that then lead to weight gain. So the question becomes, what are we doing about it? So, you know, those individuals who have, who have like, for instance, uh, depressive symptoms uh, and diabetes, uh, how are we helping them? Um, and so this is where, you know, approaches that really are comprehensive in nature uh, and involve behavioral health uh, in the care of those who have depressive symptoms and chronic diseases, including diabetes and heart disease, are really critical. Um, and this is where the shortage of behavioral health practitioners across Ohio and really across this nation is a travesty uh, for the care of those with diabetes and heart disease with depressive symptoms. One of the things that uh, we've done here at Ohio State in partnership with our Department of Psychiatry, including Dr. Sophie Lazarus, uh, who is a psychologist, she runs programming using mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, so centering you in the world and using meditation and understanding how those things can influence uh, you uh, and help you to get through different situations throughout the day. 
We use that to actually improve depressive symptoms uh, in those patients with diabetes uh, and depression specifically. It's often hard to connect the everyday circumstances of patients to these large regional and national studies. What are the most relevant findings for clinical practice? Thank you for that question. And so to make an impact addressing the non-medical health-related social needs in our daily practice is critical. There are many approaches to this, and each approach is unique to one's environment and circumstance. One approach is using a hub model of care. In Franklin County, we have the Healthcare Collaborative of Greater Columbus that manages the Central Ohio Pathways Hub. Different from other referral networks or programs in Ohio, the hub tracks risk, connection, and outcomes via pathways and a specialized technology system. The community health workers working at care-coordinated agencies work hand-in-hand with clients enrolled in the hub to attain success in completing the pathways. And then the successful outcomes, what we know as completed pathways, so you can think of closing the loop, have payments associated with that from our managed care programs in Ohio. So the hub is an excellent model as it connects individuals to the community resources that are needed to take care of the non-medical health-related social needs in a community setting. So I think that that is one great example of what we all can do to really address the social determinants of health. So for the providers around the state, uh, we will provide resources uh, so that you can learn how to connect your practice to a community hub model in order to alleviate the social determinants of health for the patients in your practices. What things might you suggest that physicians could emphasize more in interactions with patients that could help with reducing disparities in cardiovascular disease and diabetes? So there are a number of things um, and that we all need to do as clinicians uh, and providers. Uh, And so first would be addressing lifestyle modification. So I often talk about the four pillars of maintaining a healthy lifestyle, including physical activity, diet, stress, and sleep. You know, these could all be emphasized more but the emphasis has to be linked to actual resources to improve the behaviors. So, you know, in my visits, I talk about, you know, the recommendation for 150 minutes of physical activity uh, per week, right? And patients will often ask, well, you know, how, how fast should I walk? Or, you know, you know, and I say, well, you know, whatever you're doing, as long as you're sweating, uh, then that's probably enough. Uh, and then some people say, well, I don't sweat, I perspire. And I say, well, as long as you're perspiring, that's enough. And then other patients will say, well, I don't perspire, I glisten. And I say, well, as long as you're glistening, that's enough, right? But you know, making sure that you have 150 minutes of physical activity uh, per week is critical. And you know, having that recommendation coming from the provider, we know is impactful. You know, on diet, um, you know, I talk a lot about diet. I talk about what things are healthy. I talk about the colors of the rainbow. I really go through that on most visits. But then I also use our educators um, and our nutritionists um, to really work with patients on an individual level and on group level um, to help to improve the diet. In diabetes care, diet is just critical in maintaining good glucose control. Uh, And so we do a lot with diet, but even in the primary care setting, we know that diet really runs the gamut across chronic diseases. Um, And so that is another critical aspect. You know, I've already talked a little bit about stress um, and how stress raises cortisol and those things. But in my visits, I ask patients, so for stress, what do you do to de-stress? And you would be amazed the number of times where someone cannot tell me what things they do in their life to de-stress. And as a clinician, you know, I talk about, well, for de-stressing, it's different for everyone. For one person, it may be reading a book, but for another person, it may be stressful to read a book, right? For one person, it may be taking a bath, whereas for another person that doesn't like water, it may be stressful to take a bath. So working with your patients to understand what things actually lead to lower levels of stress for them is critical. And then also a plan for them to implement that in their lives. And lastly, I talk a lot about sleep, right? So, you know, everyone knows you need seven to eight hours of sleep. All the providers on here know that that is the recommendation for sleep. 
a lot of people don't actually know that, right? They know that they should get sleep, but they don't know how much. Uh, and there are many barriers to sleeping. I mean, we live in a 24-7 society, 365 days a year. So try to emphasize the importance of sleep as well as provide some strategies around that are important. So referral to programs to improve lifestyle behaviors should be a priority. For instance, only 2% of Americans eligible for a diabetes prevention program were participating in a program in 2016. And only 4% of those eligible were referred. We have to increase these numbers, but in order to do that, we have to identify and address the barriers to improving these numbers. So what is leading to 96% of providers when they have a patient in the office that is eligible for a diabetes prevention program, why are they not able to get them there? Uh, and so that is one of the areas where we can all improve, doing that individual self-reflection and practice self-reflection to determine how we can improve in that area. Uh, improving adherence to medications is another area. Uh, one approach that I use is to explain what the medications do and why the medications are being prescribed. Uh, for instance, in diabetes, I talk about what diabetes is. So I kind of go back to the very basic level of too much sugar within a blood vessel. The role of insulin, I talk about, as I did earlier, opening doors in the blood vessel to let the sugar out. Uh, and insulin resistance, where instead of one insulin to open that door, it takes 10 insulins to open that door. I then link that to medications. And I say that sulfonylureas, or things like glimepiride and glipizide, increase the supply of insulin to open those doors. Pioglitazone, uh, uh, another medication used in diabetes, is like WD-40 for the doors. It makes it so that one insulin can open one door. So really going through and explaining to patients why they're taking the medications and how they work is critical. Another aspect uh, that I talked about briefly earlier was cultural humility the ability to maintain an interpersonal stance that is other-oriented. So what does that really mean, right? So that means that you are, you are thinking about care from the, in the other person's shoes, right? And especially in relations to aspects of cultural identity that are most important to the patient. So in order to do that, you have to understand the patient, right? You have to understand where they come from and who they are. And that is pivotal and actually caring for that patient, particularly in a, in a model of team-based care and a team-based approach to care, which I know many providers use. So then there's reality, right? We have 10, 15, 20 minutes at most to spend with someone. And so it is critical that when we're thinking about these things, lifestyle modification, referral to programs, improving adherence to medications, and cultural humility, that this happens over time. It's not gonna happen in one visit or one day. But over time, in small chunks, we can make a big difference in these particular factors. So, Dr. Joseph, is there anything you'd like to add in closing or summarize for us? So thank you once again uh, for the invitation to present today. Um, and thank you for the Ohio Department of Health, um, Ohio Department of Medicaid, for all the great work uh, individuals are doing uh, to improve the health of Ohioans. Um, it is a pleasure to work in collaboration with many of my colleagues uh, on that. Uh, many of you know that Ohio is uh, 43rd in population health, 46th in health behaviors, 44th in conditions and diseases, including hypertension and diabetes, and 40th in overall health and well-being. Uh, and so we know that we have a lot of work to do, but we are definitely going down the path to improve health among Ohioans. In thinking about the podcast today, I'd like to point out just a couple of things in closing, and that's that disparities in diabetes and cardiovascular disease are multifactorial, but the social determinants of health and non-medical health-related social needs are integral. African-Americans and Hispanic-American populations have lower levels of cardiovascular health compared to white populations, and some of the difference is really caused by socioeconomic status and the differences that we see there. There are some endocrine and biological systems, uh, including the renin angiotensin aldosterone system, that may be very important in health disparities. Another thing is that diet and socioeconomic status are some of the important underlying factors leading to disparities in diabetes and cardiovascular disease. To reduce the disparities in diabetes and cardiovascular disease, 
healthcare providers can actively encourage and refer patients to lifestyle change programs to improve healthy behaviors. But first, they must identify and address barriers using cultural humility and building trust with patients and communities. Dr. Joseph, we are all experiencing unprecedented challenges from COVID-19. How are disparities shaping the impact of COVID-19? In Ohio, of the disparities we can evaluate based on the data that has been released, as of June 2nd, 2020, African-Americans have a higher rate of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths compared to whites based on population estimates for African-Americans and whites. For instance, African-Americans represent about 13% of the population, but 25% of cases, 31% of hospitalizations, and 18% of deaths. There is no socioeconomic data available broadly to evaluate the socioeconomic context, but recently data from New York City has shown significantly higher death rates in communities of socioeconomic disadvantage, with race and socioeconomic status being the largest determinants of who lives and who dies. The underlying health disparities uh, that frame these disparities in COVID-19 include higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. These three factors are really three of the leading concerns and causes driving these disparities. In national analysis using COVID-NET, from March 1st to March 30th, uh, in hospitalized patients, about 50% had hypertension, 48% had obesity, and 28% had diabetes. And relevant to this podcast, 28% also had cardiovascular disease. Among patients 18 to 49 years old, obesity was the most prevalent underlying condition followed by chronic lung disease, mainly asthma, and diabetes. Whereas among patients 50 to 64 years old, obesity was most prevalent, followed by hypertension and diabetes. In data from New York City, patients aged less than 60 years with a BMI between 30 to 34 were two times more likely to be admitted for acute care and 1.8 times more likely to be admitted to the critical care unit compared to individuals with a BMI less than 30. Likewise, patients with BMI greater than 35 and age less than 60 were two times more likely to be, to be admitted to acute care uh, and almost four times more likely to be admitted for critical care compared to the patients in the same age category who had a BMI less than 30. So though patients aged less than 60 are generally considered a lower risk group for COVID-19 disease severity, based on data from New York City and now really based on data from other uh, places across the country, uh, including some of our own data here at Ohio State, Obesity is an important risk factor for hospital admission and need for critical care. Uh, In data from France, uh, obesity and severe obesity were present in about 50% of cases. Um, And overall, of the patients who required invasive uh, mechanical ventilation, the proportion of patients who required invasive mechanical ventilation increased with BMI categories. Uh, And it was greatest in the patients with a BMI greater than 35. It has the mechanical ventilation has also been associated with uh, male sex, um, and the odds ratio for invasive mechanical ventilation in patients with a BMI greater than 35 versus those less than 25 was sevenfold higher, so seven times more likely or higher odds of needing mechanical ventilation if you had a BMI greater than 35 versus less than 25. When we think you know, back about some of those underlying issues coming back to the upstream and midstream determinants of health, including income inequality, health access, low wage employment deemed essential, uh, and housing inequality. They all also impact the risk of acquiring, spreading, and worsening outcomes from SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, first we have these underlying health conditions, right? Obesity, hypertension, diabetes. But then in addition to that, we have the neighborhoods and communities that individuals live in, the economic inequality, the healthcare access, et cetera. An example 
that brings some of these components together are that congregate living settings defined as a setting with more than six people live and where there is a propensity for rapid person-to-person spread. In many communities made vulnerable in Ohio, there are multi-generational living arrangements with more than six individuals. Uh, in these same households, there's a higher prevalence of individuals working in essential low-wage jobs with subsequent increased daily exposure to the virus. So what we have seen locally in central Ohio is that these areas are hotspots for COVID-19. Uh, thus, it really brings together these chronic medical conditions with the social determinants of health uh, and increases risk of COVID-19 uh, severity, uh, COVID-19 death, um, and just overall acquiring uh, COVID-19. How can healthcare systems and clinicians reduce disparities in cardiovascular disease and diabetes in the time of COVID-19? Well, that's a great question. And, and that's really, in many ways, that's the million dollar question, right? Like, what can we do? And due to the economic implications of COVID-19, the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services has reported over 1 million jobless claims in the last six weeks. By comparison, there were 715,000 jobless claims filed in 2018 and 2019 combined. We have exceeded that in six weeks. As of April 11th, Ohio currently ranks eighth in the country in terms of initial unemployment claims, according to the official figures from the Department of Labor. Thus, although we need to use the same principles and strategies we used pre-COVID-19 to reduce diabetes and cardiovascular disease disparities, these strategies need to be amplified given the pandemic and the high likelihood of sustained economic crises during the pandemic and post-pandemic. The other major difference uh, in the time of COVID-19 is that we have to manage the COVID-19 pandemic appropriately including promoting social distancing, mass utilization, increasing testing, contact tracing, and quarantining uh, those who test positive, along with continuing to improve our treatment capabilities. We are learning more every day regarding the interrelationships of COVID-19, uh, thrombotic or clotting diseases, uh, myocardial injury or heart attacks, uh, and stroke. Thus, COVID-19 prevention, in some ways, is cardiovascular disease prevention. Uh, an example of that, at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, uh, we have been leading uh, here locally is on nutrition and food security. Uh, I co-chair the Obesity and Nutrition Steering Committee, where we have been actively engaging with stakeholders in our system and communities to increase the support for nutrition and food security. Two of the examples are first, uh, a program with the Mid-Ohio uh, Food Collective called the Mid-Ohio Pharmacy Program, led by Dr. Aaron Clark, uh, this is for individuals who screen positive for food insecurity and are provided a prescription for access to fresh, healthy food. The prescription is in the form of a referral to the Mid-Ohio Pharmacy Program. The enrolled patients are given access to free, fresh produce on a weekly basis, as opposed to the typical monthly access. And Dr. Clark has made great strides in making the referral electronic during COVID-19 times so that it could occur during virtual visits and is working to expand the program into even more clinics across the Wexner Medical Center. Second is a recent collaboration between the OSU James Cancer Center Mobile Education Kitchen team with the Mid-Ohio Food Collective to distribute food in vulnerable communities with high levels of food security insecurity uh, in Central Ohio. Thus, tackling food security in patient populations is mission critical to the COVID-19 response and mitigation of COVID-19 risk in Ohio communities. Continuing to address the critical and health-related issue of food insecurity is a key component to tackling disparities in diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Lastly, in order to accomplish any health-related goals, it is important for healthcare organizations and individual um, health providers and smaller practices to really be you know, trusted in the communities in which they practice. We all have to build trust uh, in our individual communities. Right now, there's a lot of focus on social determinants of health and more structural factors like neighborhood. I know that you've been part of some work looking at neighborhoods and COVID-19. Could you tell me a little bit about that work? Oh, thank you for that question. And um, we have a campaign here at OSU to distribute community care kits uh, to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in Columbus, Ohio. 
Uh, to address this need and to help such populations, including vulnerable populations, return to work, social activities, interest, and family responsibilities, the Wexner Medical Center, uh, in collaboration with many partners, uh, which I'll get to in a minute, um, was leading the way in thinking about how we can distribute these food, free community care kits uh, that include isolation grade mask, hand soap, hand sanitizer, uh, toothbrushes, and toothpaste. And it's important to note that while these are isolation grade, these masks were not approved for use by providers in clinical settings uh, and were donated to us uh, by a couple of organizations. The distribution occurred in the areas of greatest need, including our most vulnerable zip codes. So we were able to do that by identifying at the census tract and zip code level where our most vulnerable communities were located uh, using the economic opportunity index, the health opportunity index, uh, the convergence index developed by the health act director at Ohio Department of Health, uh, Chip Allen, uh, and the CDC social vulnerability index. We were able to overlay these analysis conducted by Columbus Public Health and Franklin County Public Health that looked at uh, areas with high rates of COVID with the economic analysis we had done to identify high priority zip codes. Uh, and Chip Allen was really pivotal uh, in being able to do, do that work. Uh, and the Ohio Department of Health was crit critical uh, in that. Our community and civic engagement leadership and many members throughout OSU WMC have built trusted relationships with community partners over a number of years. These community partners include large corporations, including L Brands, government organizations, uh, thinking about Columbus Public Health, Franklin County Public Health, Columbus City Schools, uh, and community organizations, including the National African American Male Wellness Initiative, uh, the YMCAs, for instance. Uh, these partnerships form the foundations of the materials for the kits, including the soap, sanitizer, dental supplies, etc. And additionally, the community-based sites were all based on long-form partnerships with these organizations. And so it is critical uh, to build meaningful partnerships, um, both for small practices all the way out to large uh, academic healthcare organizations, in order to be active and engaged in communities, particularly at times of crisis such as these. On COVID-19, we know that COVID-19 has unmasked significant disparities in underlying social determinants of health and diseases, including diabetes, obesity, and hypertension, leading to higher rates of cases, hospitalizations, uh, and deaths in racial ethnic minority groups and lower socioeconomic status communities. So that physicians and healthcare organizations need to amplify the responses to address social determinants of health and non-medical health-related social needs during COVID-19 to reduce the disparities that we see, not only in diabetes and cardiovascular disease, but also the COVID-19 disparities. Thank you to our featured guest, Dr. Joseph, for joining us today. Thank you so very much for having me on today. And a special thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular Health Collaborative.